The book of Genesis is the foundational book of the whole Bible, especially in these first chapters. The Lord sets the stage for all of human history, leading up to the death and resurrection of Jesus and foreshadowing his ultimate return in judgment. Nearly every belief we hold dear as Christians has its roots in the book of Genesis. That is why it has been attacked with far greater venom and I'm sad to say far more success than just about any other book in Scripture. And it is for that reason that any study of the book of Genesis, especially the first couple chapters, you've got to come out guns blazing. <laughs> because while these first verses may seem straightforward, they have been bent and twisted to wicked use by malicious opponents, but also by unwitting Christians. If a space shuttle is launched at an angle that is off by only fractions of a degree, it will miss enormous celestial targets completely. And in the same way, if we get this wrong, we will find ourselves lost in the woods at the mercy of the wolves. But once we've cleared away those cobwebs and learned to accept the simple truth of God's word, we will find joy and peace that can only come through faith. If I am going to be found to be wrong, I would rather be wrong by standing on the word of God as plainly written than by defending some boutique interpretation of scripture in order to win the applause of men. So, this is the book of Genesis. It is named for a Latin word that means beginning. That word, of course, is Genesis. And we took it and made it an English word, and it's the title of this book. It means beginning. The original Hebrew name was Bereshit which is the first word of verse 1, which means in the beginning. As I've already said, this book gives us the beginning of everything. The beginning of the world, the beginning of man, of sin, of death, the beginning of government, the beginning of nations, and most importantly, the beginning of God's covenant with his people. Genesis as a book is organized around the word Toledoth, that is a Hebrew word. Toledoth is translated generations in most Bibles, and it is used 11 times in this book to describe the beginnings or the generations of different families. It'll say, these are the generations of Abraham, these are the generations of Noah, and so on. The first use is slightly different. In chapter 2, verse 4, it says, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth. And that phrase, these are the generations, the Toledoth, that serves as a marker to distinguish one section or one story from another. And so we'll call them out as we go through the book. We're actually not even going to get to the first one tonight, but it's important for you to know. The book of Genesis does not give the name of its author, but we have strong evidence pointing to Moses. In Deuteronomy 31, it says, when Moses had finished writing the words of this law in a book to the very end, he commanded the Levites to put it in the Ark of the Covenant as a testimony. So Moses wrote the books of the law. Traditionally, that includes the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, as it's called, or the Pentateuch. Torah meaning law, Pentateuch meaning five books. So Luke 16.31, Luke 24.27, they both refer to the Old Testament as Moses and the prophets. So as far as Jesus was concerned anyway, Moses wrote the book of Genesis, and that is also the universal tradition. But as you might expect, modern scholars do not regard the traditions of the church or even the words of Jesus very highly. In the 19th and 20th centuries, there was a school of scholars in Germany known as the higher criticism. You may have heard of this before. 
This theory picked apart every book of the Bible, and Genesis was not spared. The predominant secular theory that came from this higher critical attitude is known as the documentary hypothesis. And it postulates that there are four different authors of Genesis that were stitched together probably after the Israelites returned back from the promised land from the exile. And supposedly it reveals the evolution of Israel's theology, where they started out being just like their neighbors and eventually they grew to the monotheistic religion that we know today. And they point to several different things as evidence, and we're going to draw out all of these things as we come across them in the book. But for right now, I'm just going to list them for you. Number one, they give different names for God in different places. Sometimes he's called the Lord or Yahweh, Jehovah. Sometimes he's called El or Elohim, which is a more general name for God. Number two, there are place names that come after the time of Moses. So if Moses was writing this book, why would he call this part of the land this when it hadn't even been named at yet, for example? Number three, there's the repetition of certain stories that come twice. Most notably, the genealogy of Esau is in there twice. And number four, there are prophetic passages, which, of course, a secular scholar is going to say is impossible for there to be prophecy. Now, some of these things, they'll make for interesting questions, and we'll address them as we come across them and try to explain why uh, we believe that this is still a unit instead of stitched together from a bunch of different places. But even, even as we address these issues, you should know that the documentary hypothesis has largely been abandoned. That idea of the four authors, it's no one really argues that anymore. Where you hear it from is people who are experts in different fields who, in order to brush up real quick on what the Bible says, they, I don't know if they Google it or what, they probably do more of that than we think, <laughs> but they find this. It's the most popular thing, but it really uh, is pure speculation. There's no evidence. We have no copies of Genesis that are like different parts, and good Christian scholars have had a field day with it, so praise the Lord for that. We do not acknowledge multiple authors across multiple time periods with different theologies trying to concoct their own spiritual book. That does not mean, of course, that Moses could not have used older traditions. And he was writing the book of Genesis, and the Lord said, yeah, that one's fine. I want you to include that. And so Moses just brought it in. We know Luke, for example, did that in his gospel and maybe in the book of Acts as well. There was probably oral tradition that Moses relied on. So sometimes people will read and say, well, that doesn't sound like the same guy that's writing this other part here. So there's no reason to assume that some of it wasn't already handed down through the Israelites. And Moses was the first one to put pen to paper. Or maybe there were other sources he used. But whatever the process was... We believe that Moses was responsible for the composition of Genesis because Jesus confirms that for us. And we believe that the Holy Spirit oversaw and inspired that process, leaving us with a reliable record that is inspired, infallible, and inerrant. Genesis covers an enormous swath of history from before man even existed up to the relocation of the Israelites to Egypt. It begins with what you could call primeval history. These are the first 11 chapters with the fall of Adam and Eve in the garden, the flood of Noah and the ark, the Tower of Babel. And then in chapter 12, we enter what is often called patriarchal history. This talks about Abraham and then Isaac and Jacob and his 12 sons. And there's so much to learn in this book. And there's so much in this book that was the beginning of something that comes to fruition later on in Scripture. So we're going to draw all that out as we go through. And without further ado, let's read the first two verses of the Bible. Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 
The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. In these verses, we have a glimpse into the beginning, indeed before the beginning. These verses set the stage for the entirety of Scripture, and there are several critical things that need to be learned from these verses. I'm going to give you four, especially focusing on verse 1, so if you're taking notes, you can write these down. Number one, we learn from these verses, God has always existed. God did not come into being at any time, but has always been there. That is the meaning of the name he gave to Moses in Exodus 3.14. I am who I am. It's foolish to ask, where did God come from? Because God's very name is to be. Everything that exists has come from him. Everything had a beginning. He did not have a beginning. This has enormous theological implications. We can talk about those later. For now, it is enough for you to know it. Genesis 1.1 teaches that God has always existed. In the beginning, God was there to do something. Number two, God created everything. This verse uses the Hebrew word bara to describe his creative activity. And this is a unique word in Hebrew because the only subject that uses this verb in the Old Testament is God. No one else baras in the Bible. <laughs> There's another word, which is asa, which means to do or to make. And that one's used all the time. But only God bara. It speaks of creative action out of nothing. Sometimes it's used to restore a hopeless situation. Again, same idea, creating something out of nothing. And we're going to see this more clearly in the following verses, but we believe that God created, the Latin term is ex nihilo, which means out of nothing. God did not use pre-existing materials to make the world. He spoke it into existence. John 1 verse 3 says the same thing. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. There's no opposing force that's equal to God. He created all things. Number three, there was a beginning. This might seem painfully obvious, <laughs> but there are many who argue that the universe has always existed, maybe with an infinite regress of previous universes, but that is not what the Bible teaches. God created the world. It began to exist in a single moment. Ironically, even scientists now have had to acknowledge this. They call it the Big Bang. Even these great men of science are forced to admit what the Bible has always taught. Of course, they come up with a version that supposedly doesn't need God, but even they must agree the universe had a beginning. Number four, God is triune. The name used for God in verse one is Elohim, this is the plural form of the name El, which means God. In English, when we want to make something plural, we add S to it. We would say gods if we wanted to make it plural. In Hebrew, you add the sound im, so Elohim. And often in Hebrew, depending on the context, it is translated gods. So it's interesting here. You have a plural noun being used with a singular verb. Then in verse 2, you see the Spirit of God brooding over the waters. Immediately in the Bible, we are confronted with multiplicity within the one God. 
Now, if these verses were all we had, there might not be that much to go on. But the rest of Scripture, especially our New Testament, reveals to us that God is three in one and one in three. And the door to that possibility is kept open even here in the book of Genesis. That's the best way to say it. Is this verse definitively on its own saying that God is Trinity? No, but the Lord used language so that later on when he revealed that truth, the older text could accommodate that because the Lord knew all the time. That is why John 1 can tell us that Jesus Christ created the world. And there are several passages that attribute creation to the Holy Spirit. All three persons of the Godhead were here in the beginning. God is triune. So there are four things from verse 1 about which we can be sure. Number one, God has always existed. Number two, God created everything. Number three, the world had a beginning. And number four, God is triune. So much for verse 1. However, <laughs> Genesis chapter 1 verse 2 is one of the most intriguing and potentially mysterious verses in the whole Bible, at least to me. Read it again. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Formless, void, darkness, deep waters. What does that mean? In the next verse, God will create light and all the rest, but we see him in verse 2 hovering over a dark watery void. Because the Bible does not give us any more detail than what we see here, this passage has become a favorite for speculative ideas. A lot of people have really taken this verse and run with it. <laughs> but let's try to evaluate our options here without going crazy. The first option, and I think that there are three that are very commonly put out there. The first option is that God created the world in verse 1, and that verse 2 represents the world that he created. It's unfinished, it's chaotic, but it's something instead of nothing. That would mean that God's initial creative act was to make a universe. It's vast, it's empty, it's void, it's watery, but there's something there, whereas before there was nothing. And he turned to complete it over seven days in the next verses. I think that is the simplest and easiest option, that God created the world, and before he got to work on those six days finishing it, it was really not much of anything. It was void, it was watery, it was empty, and the Lord is going to fill it in the next few verses. The second option is that verse 2 is describing a previous world that had been populated and destroyed, perhaps by the devil and his angels. This is one form of what is called the gap theory. And it has been held by some very godly men in the church. So I don't want to just dismiss it out of hand. This argues that the devil ruined God's initial creation, whatever it was. Whatever it was he made in verse 1, the devil came in and ruined it. And that God judged it, leaving it that chaotic, watery mess. And this, for those who believe it, for them, they feel like it answers any questions you might have about the age of the earth or fossil records or anything else. I do not find this theologically impossible, but I think it is built on a lot of iffy interpretations of very obscure verses. I would not recommend this. I think it seems to come out of left field, and it's trying to make a very big mountain out of a very small molehill. But there have been more godly men than me that have believed it, so I'll just leave that there. The third option is that verse 2 is a description of the chaotic forces of nature apart from the organizing hand of God. This is usually the skeptic's view. They're saying Israel was just like the other ancient Near Eastern cultures. They viewed deep water as a symbol of uncreation or of monstrous evil. And that's what we see here. It's, it's a symbol of the fact that there was nothing. Now, there may be some elements of that, 
But the Bible makes it very clear that God has never been out of control of his creation. And this verse, note very carefully, does not assign any moral quality to the watery earth. It just says that it's dark and it's unformed. It's not using dark as a metaphor to mean evil. It just says there was nothing there. So I don't think that this verse is some leftover idea from Israel's pagan roots, whatever that might mean. And there are a lot of people that want to push that. I think that's pushing it way too far. I think that first option is the best. God's initial act of creation in verse 1, God created the heavens and the earth. There is something where before there was nothing. And that something was like a lump of clay. <laughs> the divine potter is going to make something beautiful, but first thing he's got to do is slap that un unmolded clay right there on the wheel and get things going, okay? Any attempt to cram in billions of years of natural or supernatural history seems unwarranted to me here. And this is not, certainly not some mythological holdover from Babylon or wherever. Even if this was not Moses. Do you think that there's any Israelite that would compile a book that way and leave a bunch of pagan stuff in it? I certainly don't think so. That being said, it does bring up some other interesting passages in the Old Testament that I'm just going to draw to your attention. There are several passages in the Bible where it describes creation metaphorically as God showing his mastery over deep water. For example, Peter in 2 Peter 3, verse 5, says, The earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. That's not a reference to the flood. It happens in the next verse. And you can compare verse 2 to the book of Job, chapter 26, verses 12 through 13. By his power, he stilled the sea. By his understanding, he shattered Rahav. If you read that in your Bible, this is not Rahab the harlot that let the spies into Jericho. This is a legendary monster from that culture. So he's saying the Lord shattered Rahav. By his wind, the heavens were made fair and his hand pierced the fleeing serpent. So God is comparing creation to victory over a sea monster. That's pretty cool. <laughs> and it's familiar images too. If you know your, your social studies and you know world cultures, about every culture has some story about vast deep water and there's stories about sea monsters and all the rest. That does not mean that the Bible is just one myth among many. Of course that is not true. But since we know that according to Genesis 1, God created a habitable world out of a formless, watery mess, the writers of scripture use some very cool, very creative metaphors to give him glory for it. He's not saying that there was actually a monster swimming around down there. He's saying, all these people want to give their gods the glory. You're the one that created the world, Lord. You brought it out of water. You killed whatever thing was creeping around. And it's just, it's poetry and you don't want to push that too far. So it's worth your time to ponder Genesis 1 verse 2. I think it's fascinating to sit here and think about God's Holy Spirit and that word for spirit is ruach. It can mean the wind or the breath of God hovering over the face of that watery darkness, anticipating his creation. It's sort of a cool thing to think about, isn't it? How long was he there? It does not matter. <laughs> we were not measuring time yet. And it was all made of water anyway, so it's not as if you could go back and check. Was this when Satan and his angels fell sometime in this time period? It does not say. Was there a sea monster in the water? Of course not. <laughs> But God did, in a sense, conquer the depths, right? He formed them into a home for his creation. And if there had been a sea monster there, you better believe God would have whipped him good. But that's enough wondering about things that we cannot know for sure. What do we have here? God made the world. He took that lump of clay, he slapped it on the wheel, it started to spin, and he got it wet. And he's ready to go. 
The potter is ready to begin crafting his creation. So let's read verse 3 down to verse 25. I love this so much. I get hyped when I read it. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day. And the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas, and God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and seas bearing, trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. That is as far as we're going to go today. We're going to pick up next week in the second half of day six, but this is plenty for us to get into right now. This passage shows us how God took that watery void that was the earth and made it in the span of one week to be a habitable place filled with light and life. Every day the Lord spoke out, let there be, and there was. He filled the darkness with light, separating the two and beginning the sequence of days. To clarify, that word for day in Hebrew is yom, and when used in conjunction with morning and evening, it can only mean a 24-hour literal day. And people will say, well, how could there be light if there was no sun? You need the sun to have light. No, you don't. You need light to have light. And God created light, and we're going to see in a bit, he's going to tie it to the sun. So just because you've only ever seen light come from the sun does not mean that God has to be the same way. 
He also separated the waters, creating an expanse or a firmament in the sky. Passage tells us that the sky separated the waters above from the waters below. And there are a lot of ideas about what that could mean. It could just be a reference to the vapors in the atmosphere, right? It could be a reference to the outer limits of heaven, as it is called. And I think when you see in verse 14, it says that God placed the stars where? In the expanse. And we know that the stars are out there in space. So wherever the upper waters are, they're outside of what we would call outer space. So there have been other ideas put forward. That seems like the most likely one to me. And God brought forth the dry ground and he set the boundaries of that churning sea, right? It was all water. And the Lord says, uh, you're going to go out here and you're going to go down here and then you're going to go over there and we're going to have land. And every time the Lord said that it was good. Very interesting parallelism, too, to how God created in this passage. For the first three days, he made everything ready, you might say. And then on the next three, he filled what he had made. On day one, he makes light. On day four, he makes the lights in the sky. He confined the light to the sun, the moon, and the stars. On day two, he made the skies and the waters. And on day five, he filled them with birds and with fish. On day three, he made the dry land and the plants and the grass. And he brought forth on day six the animals that would live on that dry ground and live off those plants. God is a logical, organized God, and he did everything well. It was all good. I love it. However, as you all know too well, this account of God's creation has been cast aside in nearly every quarter. The world has advanced what might be its most effective lie yet, that God did not create the world, but it all came out of nothing on its own. Everything can be explained through the laws of physics, chance mutations, and lots and lots of time. You can question just about anything these days. But question the age of the universe, question Darwinian evolution, and you might as well believe in a flat earth. In fact, people think that flat earth people are funny. They don't think people who believe in creation are funny. They just get angry. Now listen, if this was only true in the world, it'd be just another day at the office, wouldn't it? We do not expect the world to believe what God said because we know sin has blinded their eyes. That's why we pray for them. That's why we have pity on them, as the Bible says. But even in the church... Christians and Bible scholars have swallowed the world's view of origins and relegated the Bible to a seat at the kiddie table. Y'all, I have never been so grieved or felt so alone as a preacher than I did this week when I was studying for this message. With one exception, the books that I read from evangelical Christian sources, places that I rely on and I trust, only one of them insisted that the book of Genesis be taken literally. By preaching tonight as I am doing, I place myself squarely in the minority of Bible teachers, theologians, and pastors. Here's how the argument goes. A scholar looks at Genesis 1 and realizes that it does not line up with prevailing scientific theory. He knows that the word day means day, so he can't add extra time to make it work. Genesis and Darwin are at odds with each other. There's no getting away from that. But rather than insisting upon the truth as plainly written, he returns to his Bible and he searches desperately for a new interpretation that will allow him to have his cake and eat it too. And the interpretation of choice these days is to interpret Genesis 1 as a legend or a myth. A scholar in this vein 
We'll look at the watery void. They'll look at the parallel days of creation, seven days, and they'll say, ah, these are the marks not of a historical record, but of a legend or a myth with a capital M. These men make a lot of hay by comparing the Old Testament to other legends from the ancient Near East, such as the Epic of Gilgamesh or the pagan stories of the Babylonians and others. And they point out comparisons. They both have water in the beginning. They both have a flood story and so on. And they declare, well, Genesis is just another one of these. And therefore, we don't need to take it seriously. Now, the obvious question is why would God, who does not lie, include such a monstrous lie in his Bible? Well, they dodged that bullet by saying, well, God only meant to communicate that he was the creator. And so the details don't matter. They say, the Israelites, they understood the world through legends. And they knew you couldn't take them so seriously. So what did God do? He gave them a legend where he was the hero. The details don't matter. Only the message matters. The theology matters. We believe that God created. Does it really matter how he did it? That way, they can believe in billions of years. They can believe in evolution. They can believe in whatever else science wants to feed them and still claim to be Bible-believing Christians. Oh, I believe it's true. I just don't believe that it's literally factually true. I believe it's communicating a truth, very postmodern thing. The problem with this, of course, is the rest of the Bible. When Jesus was asked about his teaching on marriage in Matthew 19:4, he answered, "Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female?" He referred back to Genesis. You know that legend that we're not supposed to take seriously? In Exodus 20, verse 11, God grounded his instruction about the Sabbath day in the six days of creation. He said, for in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Paul, in Romans 5, refers to Adam, literal human Adam, as the one who sinned in the beginning and brought death upon the world. Romans 5.17 says, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. Peter warned in 2 Peter 3, verses 6 through 7, he said, some people are coming and they will forget the flood of Noah. And because of that, they're going to forget the judgment that is coming through fire someday. You can say whatever you want about how Genesis was supposed to be read. But Jesus, Moses, Peter, and Paul read it as the literal word of God. And not only that, they grounded their moral and theological instruction in the literal truth taught there. These Christians want to say it doesn't matter what actually happened at creation or the fall or the flood. As long as we know the lessons these stories are meant to teach. The details don't matter. But the rest of the Bible saw the details as just as instructive as the big picture. The Lord said, you will keep my Sabbath day because on day seven, I rested. And folks come in and say, well, we know that that's a symbolic number. Numbers aren't actually special. Well, who are you to say that? God seems to think so. Either we must conclude that Jesus, Moses, Peter, and Paul were wrong, and they did not understand their own Bibles, or that their instructions are falsely grounded and therefore no longer valid. I find it incredibly ironic that these people, and I had to read all this stuff. You guys don't know what I go through for you. When they talk about these so-called legends, they point out how the stories were meant to refute the pagan ideas of the Canaanites or whoever. For example, they say the fact that only God is creating the world in this story, it's a polemic against the polytheism of Babylon. But these same people 
are totally oblivious to the fact that the story they are reading is a polemic against their own culture's ideas as well. Do you think that God never knew that other cultures were going to read Genesis? Or are you so arrogant as to believe that every other culture was too stupid to understand the real truth of the Bible, but now I'm finally smart enough? Creation record in Genesis does not just fly in the face of Canaanite religion, it flies in the face of American secularism as well. 2 Peter 1.16 says, We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible explicitly says we do not follow myths. Believe it or not, Peter knew what a myth was. And he said, that's not what we're teaching here. Oh, but that's about Jesus do we believe the Jesus story? The Genesis story is a myth. Okay, so we don't follow a myth about Jesus, but we follow it about everything else? When does it stop? How can you possibly know what the big picture is if you claim that none of the details matter? What this is, ladies and gentlemen, plain and simple, is capitulation. It is Christians desiring to live in lockstep with the world to gain academic approval and the polite compliments of godless men. When you begin with man's word first, you end up with ideas like theistic evolution. Everything evolved naturally, but God was there guiding the process. Or progressive creation, that every so often, this is a strange one, but a lot of people believe it, that every so often God gave a fresh infusion of creative power to kind of boost the world along. I'm not saying, I am not saying, I am not saying, that anyone who believes these things is not a Christian. Far be it from me to do that. Salvation is what? By grace, through faith, in the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. But I am saying that those who have bought into these ideas about Genesis and elsewhere, it's very rarely confined to Genesis when people believe this stuff. They're high up in a tree and they're sawing off the very branch that they're sitting on. That's what I am saying. The motivation to reinterpret Genesis comes from a higher loyalty to scientific thought than to the verbal inspiration of Scripture. Now, we as Christians are not afraid of science, and we are certainly not anti-science. Scientific inquiry as a discipline began in Christian monasteries. Christians believe that since God is orderly and rational, then the world could be rationally understood. Psalm 19, verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. We believe that creation tells us all about who God is. For us to ignore what is true about the world is not biblical. All truth is God's truth, as they say. But when the modern scientist comes to the study of the past, they are operating under a significant error that we as Christians cannot accept. The scientist assumes that the way the world operates now is the way that it has always operated. This is known as uniformitarianism. This belief relies on what it calls constants, such as the laws of physics, the speed of light, the rate of gravity, and so on. They rely on those things to make determinations about what happened in the past. By calculating this trajectory and the speed of an object traveling through space, we can figure out how far it's come over any length of time. Because we know what it's doing now, we can know what it did in the past. And that's applied broadly to life, it's applied to the universe, everything. Uniformitarianism, the belief that everything has always been as it is now. 
It's a fundamental assumption of naturalism, with a capital N, naturalism. It's the belief that the natural world is all that there is. And there's nothing outside of nature. There's nothing outside of the laws of nature. A naturalist cannot believe in God or angels or miracles or anything of the kind. What you see is what you get. Therefore, when a naturalist approaches the study of stars or frogs or anything else, he can only permit himself to examine natural processes. And he assumes that the natural processes he observes now are the same processes that have always been at work at the same rate for all of history. If that is the case, you cannot possibly accept the Genesis record of origins. There's simply not enough time for the world to unfold naturally in six days. This is why scientists are forced to deal with incalculable lengths of time. Look at the Grand Canyon. It's enormous. And there's a river running through it. Now, if you assume that that river or something like it has always been there, you can calculate the rate of erosion, you can calculate change over time, you can work the clock backwards to determine how much time at that rate would be needed to erode a canyon that large. And you end up needing millions of years. And since there is no possibility of divine intervention, that's the only possible explanation for a naturalist. The same is true of the universe itself. If stars form, through the slow accumulation of gases that then combust under the weight of their own gravity, you need billions of years for them to appear naturally. Apply that to animals, and if the only natural processes you see are birth and death, you naturally will require immense quantities of time for enough fish to grow legs and figure out how to walk. That is naturalism and uniformitarianism at work. Assumptions that are so fundamental we often don't even notice them. A Christian can never accept those ideas. In fact, we are warned in Scripture that these theories were coming. Will you turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 through 9? This is a prophetic warning that was given to the church. And when you understand what Peter said and apply it to what we're talking about today, it'll give you enough, enough of a kick to believe in the inspiration of Scripture, I can tell you that much. 2 Peter chapter 3, we're going to read verses 3 through 9, but the whole chapter is worth your time. Verse 3, knowing this first of all, you ready? Scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. But they deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. If we could grasp that passage, we would be out of danger of so many biblical errors. Peter said in the last days would come scoffers who mock 
the creation story, saying that all things have continued the same way since the beginning. Y'all, that's uniformitarianism. They just didn't call it that back then. It's right there in your Bible. The apostle prophesied someday this was going to come. Look out for it. But he says that they ignore the fact that God intervened to create the world and that he washed the world over with a flood. Those are the very things that are mocked by so many today. And they ask questions, well, then where's God? If God does all these miracles, why do we never see them anymore? Peter says it right there. It's because God is patient and he's waiting for people to repent. And the next time he shows up, it's going to be judgment by fire. Do you not see that 2,000 years ago, your Bible was warning you that this was coming? We do not believe that all things have continued the same way since the beginning. We serve a God who has intervened in history and that his intervention throws off your calculations. According to natural processes, you would need a few billion years to build a star, but God can whip one up in the blink of an eye. You might need millions of years to carve a canyon, but God sent a flood and that's a whole lot more water than the Colorado River. So the scientists who ignore God's word, they may be coming up with accurate calculations of how things work now, but they're starting from the wrong point, and so they're wrong by assuming that it's always been this way. It hasn't. And not only are they biblically wrong, but they have posited some wacky ideas in order to maintain those theories. The biggest one you hear about is the fossil layers, right? Newer layers on top, older layers on bottom. That seems to make sense to me. With you so far. And they argue that it takes millions of years to make those fossil layers. So there you go. We have fossil layers. It would take millions of years to make something like that. It's right there. Therefore, we need millions of years, not six days. Okay. But when Mount St. Helens erupted in 1980, it obliterated the countryside, and it laid down rock layers in minutes not millions of years, minutes. And when these new fossils that were made were tested by the same methods they use everywhere else, guess how old they claimed that these couple-minute-old fossils were? Millions of years! If one volcanic eruption can trick the system into thinking that it's millions of years old, how about a worldwide flood? The other attack against God's creation is the sacred cow of natural selection. People point to the finches on the Galapagos Islands. They have different beaks. They point to the peppered moth in London. When there was no smog, they were white. When the smog came, they turned gray. Ah, see, there you go, evolution. And listen, both of those things we are more than happy to agree with. Yes, over time, certain traits tend to accentuate. Long-haired dogs live in cold weather because all the short-haired dogs freeze to death. <laughs> but listen, they're still dogs. The peppered moths are still moths. Yeah, the white ones got eaten because the ash made the white ones stand out more. So the gray ones survived. That's not evolution. That's just bad luck for the white moth. Darwin's finches are still finches. You might call this micro versus macro evolution. But if you're going to assume that one day one kind of animal might turn into something totally different, I'm sorry, that's nonsense. What genetic information, want to talk science? What genetic information did a fish have that would enable it to grow legs or lungs? None. Fish have fish DNA. Lizards have lizard DNA. As the Bible says, animals reproduce according to their kind. And statistical studies have been shown 
how likely it would be for all these mutations to take place as the way evolutionists say they do, and how much time would it take? It would take exponentially more time than people claim the world has existed. Listen, y'all, at a certain point, the likelihood of something happening vanishes into nothing, and we have a word for that. It's called impossible. Well, what about the stars? We all know what the speed of light is, right? 299,792,458 meters per second. I didn't have to look that up. And we know how far away some of these stars are. So for the light from that star to reach us would take innumerable light years, right? Well, if these stars were only created a few thousand years ago, the light would never have had time to make it here yet. Once again, the error of uniformitarianism, that it's always been the way that it is now. The Bible tells us right here in this passage, the stars were given so that those on the earth could mark times and seasons. God made the stars visible right away. He accelerated the process. Some people call that creating with the appearance of age, and I have no problem with it because the purpose of the stars is to help us figure out the times, the seasons, and all that. So we needed to be able to see them. So God said normally it would take a few million years for that to reach them. I'm just going to speed that up real quick. Here we go. Yes, if he started them off and left them alone, it would take light years to get here, but he made them for us, so he skipped a few steps. And then some people want to object to that. Are you saying that the earth is somehow special in the universe? Yes, I am. And this is despite the assertions of atheists that we are an insignificant speck in the universe. God made this world to be inhabited by his people. We are special. And in fact, science backs that up too. We have been able to discover countless exoplanets. What's an exoplanet? It's a planet that is revolving around another star. And we have methods of calculating and finding them. It's very fascinating. We've found tons of them. But there's only a tiny little handful, tiny fraction of them that are in what is called the habitable zone, meaning if we went there, we could live there. Tiny fraction. And of that tiny fraction, do you know how many of them have all of the qualifications in order to sustain life? Zero. What have they been saying for years? Eventually, we're going to find other planets with life on them. We keep looking. We keep going farther and farther and farther. And the farther we look, the more we realize there's nobody out there. The farther we look, the more sure we become that we are alone in the universe and that the universe was created for us, just like the Bible says. Our planet is at just the right spot with just the right temperature at just the right speed, with just the right atmosphere to sustain life. Why? Scientists call that the anthropic principle. They can't figure out why the universe seems tailor-made for this little planet with its people. But I can. Because the Bible tells us that God created the world with us in mind. In 2016, a Harvard astrophysicist, not me, a Harvard astrophysicist, he published an editorial in the Washington Post where he said that the Earth is, quote, cosmically special. He said, we've got to face the fact that there's nobody else out there and everything seems tailor-made for us. And, of course, the, the Washington Post published a few responses, and all of them were saying the same thing. You're letting your religion cloud the way you do science. This was not a Christian, a Jew, or anything else. He was an atheist. But the minute he suggests that maybe there's nobody else out there and maybe we're special, ah, you must be a religious nut. And this is where we reach the sinister underbelly of all these ideas. Once you've introduced an idea, 
an organizing narrative. People will find creative ways to fit the evidence into the narrative. It's like a writing prompt. The whole world has been given a writing prompt, and that is, explain the world, but you have to use evolution and natural processes. People are creative. They'll come up with some fanciful interpretations because they've not given themselves any other options. The story rules all. There are TV shows made and books that are written that make evolution and the rest seem very plausible. Well, it's right there on TV. It's computer-generated monkeys learning how to walk upright. So it's right there. Somebody made that up. Well, this is the only possible way to explain it. No, it's the only possible explanation. You are allowing yourself. What, what, what's the word? Limitation is the mother of innovation. If you confine it to this, people are going to come up with some pretty wild stuff. But if you break down the way that it's explained, they have not only far exceeded reason, they've gone beyond their own theory. It affects everything, you guys. Psychology, biology, neurology, even economics and government. You'll hear psychologists explain the reason that men are aggressive is because we're just grown-up animals that have to fight for a mate. So the lions fight, the chimpanzees fight, people fight. That's how we do. And so these psychologists end up spending more time looking at animals to explain human behavior than they do at humans. You hear neurologists break down the chemicals of the brain, and we've evolved to release endorphins when we're happy. Well, how does the brain know what happiness is if there's no endorphins to trigger what happiness is? You hear nature documentaries. I love this one. They talk about insects that have learned to look like thorns, or they've learned to change their colors to hide from predators. How exactly does a bug learn how to do that? You know, if we looked more like thorns, we'd probably get eaten less. You're right. Let's start looking more like thorns. That's not how evolution works. They didn't have a meeting. You don't retain learned information through evolution. Evolution is all about genetics. So everybody in the world can learn how to tie their shoes. You're still going to have to teach your kid how to tie their shoe. They're not somehow going to gain the shoe tying gene. It's really more like this. If your kids have ever watched the TV show Pokemon, there are these really wild, crazy animals, and they evolve from one into another. There's a flash of brilliant light, and now the lizard has wings. That's a cartoon, but that seems more like how intellectuals understand Darwinian theory. Well, there's this lizard, and then yabba-dabba-doo, and the next day he had wings. Well, hold on a second. There's a whole process that went into that. Who was the first lizard to have nubs on his back? And when did he learn how to start wiggling the nubs on his back? And when did they grow feathers? There's all these steps that we just sort of, and one thing led to another, and we have birds. This is not Pokemon. This is life. It's a theory that has so many cracks in its foundation when you look at it, but there's been so much art and culture built on it that we assume, well, there's got to be something there or we wouldn't have all this stuff. And that's where most of the persuasion comes from on this topic, you guys. Pressure. It's not about convincing people. It's not about questioning the status quo. It's about pressuring people to conform. No one is allowed to question this publicly. You, you watch these videos of somebody questioning evolution or questioning billions of years or the formation of stars or whatever, and people don't say, well, that's a very good question. Let me help you understand it. They start browbeating these kids sometimes. Even though scientists have made discoveries that seem to question the theory, they are encouraged to keep it quiet. This is well documented. You can find a lot of whistleblowers on this stuff. People have lost tenure or they've lost publishing deals or different things because I'm going to say something that might question evolution. Okay, then you're gone. 
Quantum physics, for example, they've discovered fields where there are particles, microscopic, below microscopic particles, that pop in and out of existence. They're there and then they're not. And if you look at it, it's not there, but if you turn your head, it's there. How does that work? Light is both a wave and a particle. Photons. Okay, you can call it photon. That doesn't explain the fact that you have no idea how this thing is working. And the more you look at it, the universe basically is just vibrating energy. It's all the same thing, and yet there's a world here. How does all of that work? How can you claim that it just happened someday? Well, you bring that up publicly, and even the scientists that are unsure, even if in their publications they're questioning some of this stuff, if somebody from the outside brings in a question, boom, they close ranks, and we're fighting off the Christians. Not unlike the Christian church, actually. We debate our theories, we debate our theology, we debate interpretations, but when it comes to defending the cross and Jesus Christ, we're in lockstep. I would never want to say that naturalism and science these days has become a religion, but it certainly seems to be that way in some ways. The theories proposed by naturalism, supported by uniformitarianism, they're so improbable that they need billions of years for them to have even a chance at coming true. The existence of life on earth is so unlikely that it might just as well have happened in six days as six million years. But they're going to stick to their story. On more than one occasion, these people have shown their willingness to lie and falsify and suppress information in order to protect their theory. There was a team that found a T-Rex bone, and it had red blood cells, live red blood cells in it, which shouldn't be the case because they were supposed to be dead however many millions of years ago. How do we have blood in this bone? Rather than letting these people present this, they deleted all the information, they hid the paper, and they said, we didn't want to give people the wrong idea. Stephen C. Meyer, he's a Christian guy, you can look him up. He's done a lot of stuff on the fossil layers, and he was ostracized and kicked out, I believe, at the Smithsonian Institute for publishing a paper that questioned this stuff. Why? Why are we lying? Why are we falsifying? Why are we shoving stuff under the rug? Why are scientists and philosophers willing to lie and cover up and intimidate people in order to maintain their ideas? I thought this was science. We follow the evidence where it leads, right? Well, look at what Peter said back in 2 Peter 3, verse 3. Now, these scoffers come following their own sinful desires. He told us what their motivation was. Paul said in Romans 1:18 that these men, by their unrighteousness, suppress the truth. He continues, Paul does, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Romans 1, 19-20. He says, both Peter and Paul, They rejected God so that they might pursue their own lusts and their own idolatry. And that's the answer today. Their own lusts and their own idolatry. They want to worship who they want to worship and they want to do whatever they want to do. Scientists and atheists have made no secret about their moral commitment to evolution. If the world came about by natural processes, well, they're no longer under the moral judgment of a holy God. They can live their lives how they like. They don't have to answer for their behavior. As one man famously said, that's why we can't allow a divine foot in the door. Man wants to rule himself, and if the evidence is going to lead him back to God, as Paul says that it does, he will lie, bully, and scoff to keep himself right where he wants to be. Jesus said in Matthew 7, verses 15 through 16, Beware of false prophets, who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. 
you will recognize them by their fruits. Jesus told us how to tell which ideas are good and which are bad. He said, judge people and their ideas by their fruit. That is, by what their ideas produce. Is this a good tree? I don't know what kind of fruit is on it. Let's say you're on the fence. Let's say you don't know whether to accept the book of Genesis or the theories of the scientists. Have you judged yet the fruit of evolution? Charles Darwin's popularization of this theory gave rise to abominable evils in the 20th century. White Americans used this as a justification to believe that they were superior, more highly evolved than all the other races of the world. And that's when the Jim Crow laws came into effect, justified in their oppression of black America in particular. Abortion clinics, eugenics offices were set up. Why? So that it would be easier for the poor in this country to kill off their kids so that the breeding pool would be better. And ultimately, this led to Adolf Hitler and his concentration camps. The Germans were more highly evolved and therefore justified in killing Jews, killing gypsies, killing Poles. That's what Hitler believed and what he preached. He took the theories of atheism and evolution out of the classroom and gave them teeth. Now I know that evolution does not necessarily lead to the gas chamber and the abortion clinic for every person. But I do know that evolution has no moral ground to stand on to condemn the actions of Hitler or Margaret Sanger or whoever. Why should they be condemned if we're all just grown-up gorillas? We might not like it personally, but there's nothing within that philosophy that necessarily excludes that sort of behavior. There is nothing about Darwin or evolution or billions of years that tells you you can't do that. Do you ever wonder why depression levels are so high in this country? Why young men are killing themselves at record rates? Why teenagers are shooting up schools with little kids in them and then killing themselves before they can even face justice? Why is there so much cultural despair? Because we have told our children there is no God, there is no heaven, there is no right, there is no wrong. You are adrift in a cold, uncaring universe. You mean nothing, and one day you will die with no one to remember you. I mean, what is a man anyway, according to evolution? What is a human? There's no such thing, really. We move in shades from frogs to lizards to rats to monkeys to people. So what's the difference between you and a kangaroo rat, really, other than time? Are you stronger and smarter than a kangaroo rat? So power, that's all there is? Power makes us better? Because we know there's no such thing as right and wrong. What we call murder is a struggle for survival. Adultery is natural, and so is everything else. So if there is no objective right and wrong, what's to stop the strong from preying on the weak? That's what happens in nature anyway. They have a right to do so if evolution is real. And if you're weak, well, what's the point of living in this world anyway? You should die and give everybody else a better chance. I bring this back to those Christians and Christian teachers who have adopted these ideas, who say that the eternal struggle for survival and reproduction is all part of God's big, beautiful plan to create the world. How can you say that the world God made was very good if he was building it upon mountains of corpses, the corpses of the weak, the unfit, and the strange? Is that what God did? No. 1 Corinthians 15, 26, Paul said the last 
enemy to be destroyed is death. Death is an enemy. Death is an intrusion. It is the judgment for sin. But you want to tell me that God used death as his primary instrument to create the world? Then he looked at it and said, that is very good. What then was the point of Jesus' death and resurrection? If death predated sin, if death was no penalty for sin, it was just part of life, what was he saving us from? You cannot isolate the book of Genesis and say that it's a legend or a myth and then leave the rest of the scriptures intact. You can't do it. And they all do, you guys. They want to talk about how much they love Jesus and they love the church and they love the cross. And I'll bet you they do, but they do not see that they're sitting on that limb and they're sawing off the branch they're sitting on. And when people begin to bend on Genesis, they will bend everywhere else. I guarantee you. There is a very prominent Christian commentator who has argued very prominently, he's kind of spearheading this thing, that creation was just a legend and need not be taken literally. Well, then he wrote another book, and he argued that the flood was just a myth too. And then the next book, The Garden of Eden and Adam and Eve, it's just a myth. You don't need to take it literally. And his latest book, Angels and Demons, are just a myth. You don't have to take them literally. All of it, he says, it's a cultural accommodation. The details don't matter. You see the slide? How long until that guy puts out a book saying the resurrection doesn't matter either? These same people will ignore the details of prophecy too. Proving that Peter was right. When you scoff at the beginning, you're going to scoff at the end. If we give way on Genesis, as we will see as we go through this, you're going to give up your foundation for marriage, morality, judgment, and salvation. And the church has largely given way on Genesis and we are watching them give away on all of these things and more. You can be a Christian and take Genesis figuratively, but I have no doubt that these authors who have written this stuff are going to be horrified when they get to heaven and see the damage that their work has done. Look at this story here in Genesis 1. It's beautiful. It's majestic. It's mysterious. And it places God firmly on the throne of creation. Isn't that a better story? Isn't that a better way to live? Why would we come and take our own presuppositions, our own so-called knowledge, and try to pick it apart? Ah, it's a made-up myth. It's trying to cover up the fact that God really used a barbaric millions of years of struggle and death. And that was too obscene to put in the Bible. So God put this nice story about the seven days. We're no better than those Canaanites. Our knowledge is flawed too. But we have the written record of what God has done. He spoke to Moses at Mount Sinai and he confirmed the story to him of how everything began. How can we ultimately know it's all true? Well, I suppose you must take it on faith in the end, like everything else. But if it is all true, if that story I read is true and God made the world that way, then the world is not random. It was by design. Right and wrong are not just functions of power. They're the eternal laws of heaven. Man is not just another ape, but the hand-crafted creation of God, made in his image and the object of his love. I would rather live my life and go to my grave believing that than anything man or the devil or so-called science has been able to come up with. I'm sure God would forgive me for taking his myth seriously when I get to heaven. And if living as if this story were true has the power to fill us up with joy and peace and purpose, that may be an indication that the story is true. 